As I was studying and preparing this week, and, and, and we're going to touch on something this morning that is especially uh, countercultural, it's especially uh, of, offensive to our culture, it's, it's very different than, than the kind of tra- trajectory that we see our, our country, our city, our state, and everything kind of moving towards. And so inherently, whenever you talk about something that, that the surrounding uh, populace doesn't, doesn't agree with, that our surrounding country doesn't agree with, it, it becomes kind of a rub because it's at what stage do I, do I follow my convictions and at what stage do I, you know, how do I address these things in community? And this becomes a real issue. And so as I was studying this and reading this, and reading about this, one of the guys I was listening to and, and reading some of his writings, he was talking about the fact that anytime our, our culture sees us engage the poor and, and, man, really work against poverty, they are all for that. Like, man, Christians, they, they love to be engaged in, in fights against poverty. When they see Christians go out and, the, and they're, they're warring for the orphans and, and, and they're really pushing for adoption, like, man, that is so fantastic. I'm so excited. These, these Christians, they, they care about life. They care about you know, seeing all these good things happen. And when they see Christians do things for the elderly, they say, oh man, these Christians are really concerned and at work for those that can't defend, can't care for themselves. But when it gets in, in terms of, of issues of sexuality, in terms of gender roles and, and distinctions for for things that, that God has ordained that a woman does and things that God has ordained that a man does, our surrounding culture and our community looks at it and they're like, hey, one, one step too far. Man, you guys aren't, you're not educated, you aren't buying into this, this heightened sense of maturity. You're not, you're not advocating something that we particularly care for. So you're, you're suppressing women, you're you're trying to designate us into, into ideals, into roles, and, and we don't buy into that because we're, we're liberated, we're more high-minded than you are, and so we see that they don't particularly appreciate it when we take seriously what the Bible has to say about designations for gender roles, and that's exactly what we're going to look at today as Paul addresses this problem uh, that was also at work in Ephesus. So let me read 8 through 15 for us, and then we'll begin to walk through this passage. Paul writes, and he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Hey, we're, we're fine with what Paul has to say so far, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Man, we, we resonate with the things Paul has said so far. But then he continues, he says, let a, woman learn with, with, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I gave about five minutes of thought of just kind of skipping over this passage, saying, hey, look, I'm going to teach this in a special Wednesday night deal. Those of you who want to be there, I'm in a room that seats five. And so all five of you can come in, and, and you can hear this, and then you can go tell everybody else in some type of grand assembly. But I decided not to do that, because there would be invariably any number of things that I would desire to skip. 
When we talk about church discipline, I'd come to that and be like, oh man, I'm not so sure about that. And I would say, well, there's a, there's a room that 10 of us are going to get together this time, and I'm only inviting the Beauchards. <laughs> Having a large family, they would, anyway. But as we walk through this, keep in mind that our culture, just because it advocates a different position, does not make that position necessarily right. Just because we exist in a time that is 2,000 years after the writing of this, doesn't make our position necessarily more elevated, more educated, and superior to the real Word of God, which we are reminded is eternal. So Paul starts off, and you'll remember that last week, Paul began, and he said, first of all, I urge that you offer what? He said four things. He said, I urge that you offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving on behalf of all men. So he began this chapter with the idea that we are to be engaged in prayer. We're to be engaged in prayer, we're to intercede, we're to go before God and ask that he do things for those around us, even though some of those people might be at war against God. We're to ask that he intercede on their behalf. And so Paul returns to it again here in verse 8. And he looks at men. And one of the things that Paul observe in, in, observes in men is that we are, we are grudge carriers. He observes in men that, that our anger has a tendency to kind of control who we are. It, it works against us accomplishing good ends. And so Paul says, hey look, I urge, my desire then is that in every place, that men should pray. He said, I want to see you praying. And then he goes on and he describes what that prayer should look like. Now the first thing he writes is, it really begins to move us into the charismatic camp. And so he says, he says, with, with holy hands lifted up. Lifting up holy hands. And so those around you said, ah, this, this is, this, I can't do it. Ah, oh, Freedom! And so you begin to think, Paul, I can't do that. You know, the commercial in the 80s said, raise your hand if you're sure. And all the Baptists said, no. <laughs> he says, lift up holy hands in, in prayer. And this isn't some novel New, New Testament you know, type of idea that Paul is developing, but he's really appealing to something that existed even in Judaism. You can see multiple references to it in the Psalms, and I'll read two of those. In Psalm 134, verse 2, it says, Lift up hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. This idea that in lifting up our hands, we praise and bless God. In Psalm 141, again in verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, so let my prayer be recognized as a sacrifice, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. See, it's this idea that, that God wants our, our demonstrative response in worship. He wants to see us engaged in worship. So there are times when we are singing, when we are absolutely driven to the point where I can't demonstrably stand before you, I can't give you type of response because I am so overwhelmed by the weighty experience and feeling of the Spirit and the presence of God that we are forced to sit. And some of you I heard last week talking about your experience as we came together and we worshiped God, and some of you said that, that as we sang together that you felt that you couldn't sing anymore, that you had to sit. Because the Spirit of God was so heavy upon you. We see also there's a place that when we worship God, that our hands are raised and lifted high, and that we enter into prayer to God. And that's what Paul describes. But Paul isn't primarily concerned with describing a posture of prayer. He's primarily concerned with describing the characteristics of prayer. He says, hey, look, when you're engaged in prayer, 
you're not entering into some type of polite conversation before God. You're not entering into some type of, you know, pre-recorded or conditioned paragraph that, that you spell off before God when you're trying to go through all of these points and, and details and, and before God. But he says, what I'm primarily concerned about is that your prayer doesn't have two characteristics. Your prayer doesn't have anger, and your prayer doesn't have dissension or quarreling as one of its characteristics. He says, hey, look, when you, when you pray and when you enter into these things, if, if there is anger, if there is animosity pent up inside you towards one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, if there is anger or animosity pent up inside you towards your spouse, towards anybody, then you are praying incorrectly. Man, so that's a real check to us as we come in and we pray to God, as we approach our Heavenly Father, as we approach the creator of the entire universe, the expanse, the heavens and the earth. We check our hearts to say, God, what is my posture towards you? Do I have anger? Do I have frustration that I'm holding on to from, from work or for entering into relationships with my siblings or my spouse or my children? What are we harboring? against others who are also created in the image of God. And so Paul calls us to check our attitudes. He calls us to evaluation of our hearts. He says it's without anger, it is without quarreling. And then he comes to verse 9, he says, likewise, women also. And so, in essence, he's using the same verbal idea of desire. He says, I desire, likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So he just throws it out there. Now, when we look at the situation that was taking place in Ephesus, this gives us a radically different understanding of what Paul was advocating. You see, in, in Texas, when I moved to Texas, one of the first things I learned in, in the fall of 97 was that oftentimes, now this isn't hard and fast, but Texas women have big hair. This, is, this isn't hard and fast, but there, for a while there, Texas women were known as those who had big hair, you know, bouffant hairdos. They had, they had large, large hair. And so Paul goes in and he's, he's talking about what the women in Ephesus were doing. Now, the, the clothing and the categories Paul describes isn't hair teased up with a lot of hairspray. And he's not warring against the display of wearing gold or pearls and so there are some women that read ahead of this passage and they begin to take the pearl snaps off their ears and unhook the, the gold chain from around their neck and put them in their purse and look at their husband and say I told you not to let me wear this today why did you let me wear this in fact you bought this for me what are you trying to say about me so when Paul goes in and he's describing these women in Ephesus he's he's talking about what was prominent and prevalent in Ephesus that these, these upper-crust women, and in some sense, upper-crust uh, escorts, would go in and they would, would dress themselves up with such an incredibly lavish display of external wealth that they would have gold braided in their hair, they would have all sorts of, of jewels in their hair and, and rings and necklaces, and they would just be duded out with, with all manner and display of wealth and extravagance. And there were some in the church that had a little bit of money. There were some in the church that had a little bit of money, and they looked around and they saw these women, and the thought occurred to them, man, don't they look nice. 
don't they look nice? Aren't they really adorning themselves? Aren't they, you know, it's like decorating a Christmas tree. Don't they have just great ornamentation on them? And so they begin to, to collect these things. They begin to dress themselves in a way to reflect the culture that they thought was to be valued. So they begin to mirror the things they saw. They begin to not dress in respectable, respectable apparel. And Paul addresses that as that being with modesty and self-control. But they begin to braid their hair wildly. They begin to wear gold and pearls and costly attire. Now, Paul's not entering in and saying, hey, look, you shouldn't braid your hair. He's not saying, you know, part it in the middle, tuck it behind the ears, and, and just leave it alone, please. That's not what he's advocating. Paul isn't setting up this idea that, you know, he's got some type of first century what not to wear. And so he pulls the Christian women in. And he says, hey, look, you, I'm sorry, that's a French braid. We don't do that here. There's a church down the road that they would be happy to accept your French braid. We're more of a ponytail with a, with a uh, what's that thing called? Huh? Scrunchy. Koozie was stuck in my mind. I, I knew that wasn't right. It's an E sound on the end. You can see how I got tripped up. But he's not saying that, that these are the types of things that you need to do. What he's saying is that you need to be primarily concerned with your heart. You need to be, be, be primarily concerned with your heart. See, these women, these, these escorts and the, uh, the women that are in the upper echelon of culture, I mean, their, their hair would make the bouffant tall hair, big hair in Texas look like a severely bad hair day with high humidity. These women were so decked out and so bejeweled that what it smacked to the poor people around them is that we care more about our outward adornment than we do you're even being able to make it through the day. You see, you can't buy food, but I can dress myself in enough food and in enough clothing that, that would supply food for you for years in advance. One of the articles I read describing how many years an average person, a, a day laborer, would have to work to purchase the attire worn by these upper echelon women, it said 19 years of dedicated service. So if a day laborer said, man, I want my wife to be able to dress like this, and he set himself out, and he said, I'm going to get you what you want, honey. He would have to work for 19 years, not eat, not spend any of the money, save every single dime. And then at the end of 19 years, when she needs a, a more assistance now, he'd walk over to her and say, here you go. I realize it's no longer fashionable, but now you have all the gold, now you have all the jewels, and now we can braid what little bit is left of your hair. You see, he would have to work for 19 years to be able to provide her with what she saw in the surrounding community, if that is what she valued. But Paul offers something completely contrary to what they see in their culture. He says, don't adorn yourself with that. Don't adorn yourself with gold or with pearls or with costly attire. But adorn yourself with what is proper for women who profess godliness. He says, adorn yourself with what you what is proper and respectable for women who profess God to be their Savior. And Paul, in, in some sense, is saying as a, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as one who looks at Jesus and says, you have redeemed me, you have saved me, my life is not mine, but it is yours, that your pattern of life and behavior and even your wardrobe should be different than the surrounding culture. And this is what he tells them to wear. He says, wear good works. 
Do you see that in the text? He says, he says, don't wear all of these things, but wear what is proper for women who profess godliness. Wear good works. So he goes completely contrary to the understanding where Paul, one might think that he would describe all of these various accoutrements of, of fashion and then go in and say, hey, look, no hair clips. What, what you need to wear is more akin to a muumuu. Instead, he looks at it and he says, I'm not even going to enter into the fashion debate, but what you need to be primarily concerned with is that you're wearing good works. That people would look at you and see all of the things that you're doing in community and say, this person must be one of these Christians I've heard about. Then, then when they look at you, when they engage you, when you're at Brookshire Brothers or wherever you are, they would look and say, man, they are dressed so nice. But what they would know about you is your involvement. What they would know about you is that you're a person whose demonstration of faith in your life speaks so much louder than anything you might wear. What Paul is telling them is to give more consideration and care to the things you do than the things you wear. Give more care and consideration to the ways that you serve those around you than the way you get dressed in the mornings. They need to be adorned with good works. And then Paul begins to, to, to head in what for us today in our culture is a more difficult thing. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, there's something we need to know going into this. See, Paul isn't carrying over this understanding that he has held over from Judaism. See, there are those that read this text and say, well, you've got to remember Paul was, I mean, he was a Jew and, and they're a little stodgy and so he's, he's carrying over some of this. You see, there's a, there's a some, a rabbinic tradition, there's this guy who's writing about the Torah. He's writing about the first five books of the Old Testament, and he's <clears throat> making commentary on how we should use it and how it should be taught and all these things. And what he says about women, he says, it's better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. He said, it's better to just light it on fire, to get rid of it, to not have it anymore than to teach it to a woman. Now, this is someone who would be a contemporary with Paul. So if Paul's going to stay strict in line with Judaism, he's not going to do these things. He's not going to advocate this type of thing that he's advocating here. So instead of saying, just get rid of it or don't teach her at all, what Paul says is, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. But even when we say let a woman learn, what we see in here is, in the English, is a watering down of what we see in the Greek. See, Paul's commanding that, we are to, that women are to learn. He's giving instruction to Timothy and through Timothy to all the other pastors in Ephesus, and he's telling them, you are to educate the women in your church. Women in your church are to be learning. See, Paul's not describing this, this pattern in this existence that is subservient. He's not describing this pattern in this, this role that sees them under the foot of men. He's not advocating the subjugation of women. What he's calling them to is active involvement in the life of the church. He says they are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Paul's describing their, their inward posture more than just life and in, in life in worship in the, in the church setting. He's they, they are to approach 
this understanding of receiving the word of God with meekness there to approach and understand learning in an active way. And so then with all submissiveness. So the question becomes who or what are they submitting to? Who or what is Timothy to tell them to submit to? Well, I would put it to you that they are to submit primarily to the word of God as given to them by those that God has placed in authority over them. So by the elders, the pastors, the overseers, or however you want to parse it, that's who Paul is describing. Because in this section, Paul is talking about those things that take place in a public worship setting. So this idea that a woman is to learn quietly with all submissiveness is, is really what almost everybody in here is engaged in this morning. Except for those that, that cough or cell phone goes off and all these things. Then you are, you're learning, but disruptively. See, he's calling these women to learn. He's calling you and I as well to learn. We are to be engaged in study and following through with that study. But he gets especially offensive for us in verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, there are different ways of handling this text. And on Wednesday night, we spent some time going through and talking about all the nuanced ways of understanding this text and exactly how that would break out. But let me just, let me just summarize it a little bit for us this morning. You see, there's the line of thought that comes into it and says, well, this is just Paul, this is particularly to Paul, we don't have to pay attention to that. Well, then the difficulty becomes exactly what do you pay attention to, because this whole letter is written by Paul. See, we can't just go through the New Testament picking and choosing those things that we are going to apply to our lives, but we have to apply all of it, or we risk alienating all of it. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, see, when I read through this passage, the question becomes, what is Paul describing? Is Paul saying that a woman can't teach? Do you, th do you really think that Paul's saying that women, they're, just, they're not able, they don't have the, the wherewithal to teach? Well, man, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Because if you look at the way that Paul has interacted thus far in the New Testament, even if you look at the way Jesus interacted on his time on earth, who did Jesus first appear to? To women. And what were they instructed to do? They were to go and tell the disciples. Jesus entrusted the primary interaction of his resurrection to women who were to go and to tell the disciples what they had seen. Man, he radically elevated the understanding of women in the first century more than any other teacher, more than any other person had done to date. When you look at Paul, Paul writing in the church of Corinth, he describes uh, this man, Apollos. And one of the things we find out about Apollos is that he was a phenomenal teacher. I mean, this man was a gifted rhetorician. He, he could really spin words, but he had some trouble. He had some difficulty in understanding the nuances of theology. And we read and we find out that Priscilla and Aquila, they went to Apollos and they pulled him aside. And we see that the wife, in this instance, I mean, she took considerable time in instructing Apollos in a true and right understanding of the Word of God in a true and right understanding of theology. 
Now, if Paul is going to go in and talk about that, that women shouldn't teach, then he, he wrote the letter to the wrong person. You see, but I think that Timothy is, is perfect to have received this. And, and the, the letter of 1 Timothy is a brilliant display of the elevation of women. Because if you study your Bible well, you'll recognize that Timothy received his primary care and instruction at the hand of two women, his mother and his grandmother. You'll remember that Timothy's father was himself not a Christian. He was a Greek. And so Paul's going to write and argue that, that women shouldn't teach or women absolutely couldn't teach. One, he chose the wrong person to write it to. Because Timothy would read that and be like, well, what, what does that mean I am? What does that mean I am? Because I received my primary instruction from these two godly women. And Paul would be working against those things that he had said previously. And so when we go back then and we evaluate, what is Paul saying? How, how then should we interpret what Paul says here? Well, what are the two things that Paul says they shouldn't do? Paul says that I don't permit a woman to teach, and I don't permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. And when we flip over to 1 Timothy 5.17, we begin to get an understanding and an idea, and we see these things crystallized. Paul writes, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What are the two primary characteristics that Paul describes an elder is doing? One who rules, one who teaches. One who exercises authority, and one who instructs. What does Paul give us a picture here that women aren't permitted to do in verse 12? Women are not qualified for the, for the position of elder. What does he begin chapter 3 with? A description of what an elder is. A description of the qualifications of an elder. Paul's not looking to, to browbeat women. He's not looking to put women in their place. What he's telling us is that a woman's design and her function is such that she is not a biblically qualified candidate for the office of elder. So when we look at who can be an elder, when we look at who can be an overseer or a pastor, or however you want to parse that term, we see that women are not qualified for that role. You see, we see our, our culture, we even see mainline denominations begin to move against that. They begin to move to accept women as pastors and elders, and they are moving, if we take a plain reading of this text, against the Word of God. He says, rather, she is to remain quiet. And then Paul gives us two points of rationale for his argument. Paul gives us two points of rationale. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so discussing the reasons why a woman can't be an elder in the church, Paul says Adam was created first and then Eve. Now, why would Paul go to the created order to describe why a woman couldn't be an elder in the church? See, Paul wants to point out that the reason a woman can't be an elder in the church is not a result of the fall. See, he, he finds it, he founds it, prior to the fall of humanity, prior to Adam and Eve's sin. He says, prior to the fall, Adam was created first, 
than Eve. He, find, he finds these things prior to the fall. That's important. You see, gender roles and distinctions between men and women are not a result of the fall. Well, there are some things that are a result of the fall, but designation of function is not one of those things. Secondly, Paul says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You'll remember that when God confronts Adam and Eve and he asks them, he's like, essentially says, Who told you that you were naked? And because it's, it's only the two of you here, who told you that you were naked? And the woman begins to go in this description, and she says, it was a serpent that deceived me. This, this snake, the serpent, he deceived me. And we see that, that Eve was deceived. She was led astray through the cunning and guile of the devil. That she was led astray. But that Adam... Adam completely abdicated his role and his responsibility to his wife. Adam was there with her. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned with eyes open. Adam abdicated his role as, as teacher. He abdicated his role and authority over his spouse, and he gave it to her, and he followed her into that sin with his eyes open, boldly moving against what he knew to be wrong. See, those are the two reasons that Paul gives us. Now, you might not like it. You might wish there were more or there was a more nuanced or politically correct way of stating that, but that's what we have. See, there is no deficiency in the woman. There is no deficiency in saying that, that she's not as, as bright or as educated because as I tell my son day in and day out, you need to ask mommy, she's much smarter than daddy is. And as I daily experience it in my work with, with Carol B., and I'll go and I'll ask her, I'll say, well, no, what do you think about this when I realized that after 43 years of working in this church that she has been much smarter than the majority of pastors, myself included? And that's not, that's not a little bit of hyperbole, that God has given her insight into the Word of God, that God has given her a special perspective that He has not given me. So I seek out her advice, I seek out her instruction. But when we look at the public worship setting, God sets apart men to be the ones that lead. So we're not going to even get into the home life here. But we see some of these same things go on in the home. And so you wonder, well, why have women stepped up? Why have we seen women take more and more roles in the church? It is simply this. Just like Adam, men have abdicated their responsibility. Just like Adam, we sin with eyes open and we refuse to serve. Somebody's got to do it. And so we see woman after woman step up to fill the role that men were designed to serve. Men were designed to fulfill. And then Paul leaves us an especially difficult, especially difficult verse here to end on. He says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now as we look at this, it, any woman out there that hasn't had children yet begins to think, Oh man, I certainly don't want to die yet because I haven't had children and I won't be saved if I don't have children. And there are those who interpret that passage as thus meaning that a woman absolutely cannot be saved unless she has a child. That's a big problem for us. 
Not just because not every woman here will have a child, but it's a big problem for us because that becomes a work, doesn't it? For any of you who have, have gone through labor, you say, absolutely, that's a work. Epidural or not, it was, it was uncomfortable. I was in the room and I was uncomfortable. And so we see that he's not making a reference to the actual birthing of a child. But what Paul does is he, he lines in on the one thing or one of the, the key things that is unique to a woman. Childbirth. If Paul wants to describe one thing that is completely given to a woman that is completely hers and, and her husband has no involvement in the process, process, it is birthing a child. So what Paul does is he offers us a shorthand. He says that you will be saved. He's not talking about salvation. What he's talking about is brought out of this, this struggle. You will be delivered from this if you will recognize that God has designed you for a purpose, if you will recognize that God has given you a whole, a whole separate list of attributes, a whole separate created design, that he didn't make you to fulfill the same obligations and responsibilities as man. He made you to fulfill something that man could never fulfill. He made you to do something that your husband, God bless him, could never do. You see, even in the Trinity, we get an understanding that there is, we have God the Father, we have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. You know, they are co-equal in majesty and glory, amen? But they are distinct and different in role and function. And it has been that way from eternity past, and it will be that way until eternity future. There is a difference in distinction and function Christ is functionally submissive to God the Father, but he is not less God. Paul describes in this passage that women are to be under the authority. They are not to be the ones with authority in the public worship setting. But they are not less image bearers of God, for we are all created in the image of God. We see the, the simple matter is today that as we live in this culture, I read an article a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about, about gender roles, and this has been especially, um, I guess, written up in the news lately because of some of the rulings against DOMA and some of the things against homosexuality. And so this author had, had tracked down this little girl living in Colorado Springs, and this little girl just finished the first grade. And like a lot of, of little girls, she plays with dolls, she... You know, does, does girly things. But one of the interesting things about this little girl is that she was born a boy. See, but one of the things her parents noticed, noticed was that at age five, uh, this little girl who was then a boy, he wanted a pink blanket instead of a blue blanket. And so as the parent, they looked at that and said, oh, our little boy must want to be a girl. And then they noticed that, that this little boy began to, he liked to play with dolls, didn't like to play with, didn't like to play with cars, didn't like to roughhouse, didn't all these things. And they said, oh, this, our child is choosing their own gender distinction. See, we live in a society that has completely muddied the understanding 
that we are created in the image of God, that has completely muddied the understanding that we are created to be distinctly male and distinctly female. We do not choose that on our own. God has created us with a purpose. And if you're a woman, God created you to be such, and he put, took great care to fashion you. He took great care to pick out your eye color. He took great care to pick out your hair color. He took great care to make you the way that you are. Man, you should, you should relish that. You should treasure that. You should not war and desire to have things that God did not purpose, that he did not design you to be. You see, it's not this thing that we choose. But God loves us. He designs us for a purpose, and we are to fulfill that purpose. We are to fulfill our role and our function so that we might bring greater glory to God. Let me pray for us.